you beautiful bluebirds. Thanks for coming back with us for another week of A Little Greener, the podcast all about sustainability, conservation, and all things nature. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Sarah, and I am here as always with Casey. Hi, everybody. And we hope that you had a great week, and we're glad that you're back uh, joining us again this week. If you listened last week, you might remember we gave you a little homework assignment, a little weekly challenge to spend two hours outside in nature over the course of the week. And we said we were going to do that homework with you. So Casey, how did you do? I met our goal. Woo! Woo! Last week we talked about how lousy the weather was here. Uh, now the weather's pretty wonderful, especially this last weekend. So I spent a good time outside in my backyard reading a book, which was really wonderful. And we planted our first seeds in our garden, Yay. which was also lovely. And really like that was the most naturey thing that we did where I was like hands in the dirt because our other time outside was walking along the canal in our city. And while that was really wonderful, it is a much more of kind of a Mm man-made structure area. So I definitely felt that relaxation factor a little bit more when I was gardening, I think, than even just taking the dog on a walk. But yeah. How about you, Sarah? What? How was your homework? I also accomplished our two-hour goal, yeah. although it was a near thing. I got a little concerned uh, at one point because I did not get outside over my days off as much as I had intended to. So mine, I, I had a little bit of the same experience as you, Casey, in terms of being outdoors, but not necessarily in nature. I was still very much in in the city environment because part of my outdoor time I got in over my lunch break. So eating lunch outside, which I forgot how wonderful though it is to be able to do that over the winter months. Obviously we can't really do that where we live. So it's wonderful that it's warming up enough to be able to get just that little break in the middle of the day. And I did find that very refreshing. I actually told Casey this earlier already, but one of the days I went out to walk and there was like a bucket lift out right near where I was just beeping constantly. So I'm out trying to, you know, listen for uh, birds do some lunchtime birding and there was there was no chance it was just very very <laughs> loud very loud man-made noises going on all the time so that was a little more frustrating than relaxing perhaps but uh, the next day w- was beautiful I had much better luck that second time and then just had a beautiful beautiful evening where I took my dinner outside and got to sit in my backyard and and read a book for a little bit as well so it was good it was it was very refreshing. You know, it's not a magic cure. We still had stressful weeks and, uh, and all of that, but I do, I do definitely feel a little bit of relaxation, just getting to spend some time outside. Yeah. I think Sarah, you're modeling really great behavior in that you're not making a huge amount of time outside of what you're normally doing. You're just transferring your normal activities to an outdoor space. So if you're someone who works in an office space and you're staring at a screen all day long, going outside for your lunch break and just taking a rest for your eyes and for your soul a little bit, eating your meals outside is a great way to work in that two hours. And that goes really fast. Remember, that's just like 17 minutes a day. So if you got a half hour lunch break, you're going to double that. So give it a shot. If you didn't do your homework this last week, that's a okay. Try to try for it this week. Cause that hopefully will make an improvement on your life. Yeah. If this could become a habit, that's, that's ideal. And I, 
Yeah, absolutely, Casey. I feel like looking for ways that you can incorporate this the best into your daily life. And then I think little by little, you'll you'll start to be able to make more time for it. But even like even if you can't eat your lunches outside or spend an hour sitting outside in the evening, even I would say just little things like if you're going out to check the mail or something like that, just stay outside for a few minutes and look around instead of just going straight out to your mailbox and running back inside, just pause for a few minutes and look and watch the leaves blowing in the wind, see if you hear any nature sounds, you know, even just start there if if that's what you can do to start off with. Yeah. And this is related. My question for you this week, Sarah, is what nature-based activities did you engage in (laughs) during the pandemic? I feel like I'm the only person in the world that did not pick up a new hobby during the (laughs) pandemic. Everybody was learning new things and baking bread, and I was not doing that. Um, But I did. I did use the time. We had a couple of months where we were working from home, and I did use that sort of extra time that I gained with not having to commute back and forth and all of that to spend additional time on things that I've already done, but maybe didn't do as regularly because of other time commitments. Um, One, not super nature related, but did get me outside a lot. I was running regularly, um, and I'm someone who will run a lot without music. So it is really a time that I can sort of pay attention and, and, and it does get me outside for quite a bit of time. So I was doing that regularly. And then the other one that I tried to pick back up a little bit was bird watching. And I say that very hesitantly because my knowledge on birds and my bird ID, it, it's not strong. I'm a very, very amateur birder, but I do enjoy it now. I'm, I'm to the point where uh, I used to get frustrated a lot by it. And so during the pandemic, I um, tried to just pick up on it a little more. And I tried some new kind of tools and resources that really helped me to, to kind of get back into it, I guess. Did you do any, anything new, Casey? I, I wouldn't say necessarily new, but because what I ended up working was four tens, so four days on mm. and three days off. And because we had an elongated weekend and no one to hang out with or anywhere to go, really, <laughs> we ended up going a lot more to our state parks. So during nice. the pandemic, yeah, the state parks waived admission fees at that time. Yeah. And so we ended up going out to several local parks and walking our dog out there. We'll say we were the ones like walking 10 feet off the path with our masks yeah. on while everyone else sort of just tromped through, like it was nothing was happening. So that was a little concerning when we were doing that. This is, this is back in like March of last year when mm-hmm. we really had no idea really concept of how contagious it was. And so that was a really great way for us because having a three-day weekend, we could then take the next day and rest from hiking all the time and still have a day to do other things. So I uh, hope that we continue to go to some state parks, but I did ask that question for a reason. We are going to talk a little bit. I knew Sarah 
is an amateur birder. <laughs> and so we are going to talk a little bit about backyard birding in just a little bit. But um, today, some conservation news broke. Uh, this is not related to birds. It is much more on a, a global level. But if you are not familiar, there is an organization called the IUCN, which is the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. They consult with the United Nations on nature-based activities. And if you've ever heard someone be like, that species is critically endangered, it is the IUCN who makes those determinations. So on a national level, a state level, animals can be considered endangered. You can think the endangered species list. Those can have certain regulations, but that IUCN red list is how they really compile those assessments and look at the global status for different species. So with that background in mind, Sarah, what, what did we learn today? So there was some updated information, and that's something that the IUCN will do regularly for species on elephants. So African elephants have now been have they been officially split into now two species. So you have your savanna elephants and your forest elephants, which is something that folks in that field have been talking about for a long time, and the genetic evidence is there now to declare those two separate species. So while previously African elephants were listed as vulnerable on that continuum uh, leading, you know, from animals being um, very present in the environment to not not at all existing anymore. Um, they were listed as vulnerable and now the two species declared separately. We have savanna elephants now being listed as an endangered species and those forest elephants being listed as critically endangered species. Yeah, so this sounds like in some ways bad news and I'm not gonna tell you that it's good news, but when I was learning about elephants, I was doing a lot of research and found out that a lot of scientists were arguing for two separate species to be declared of elephants. And on top of the scientific basis for declaring a species, sometimes there's also political and conservation consequences to that too. So it's not as clean as maybe your seventh grade biology class told you it is. And one of the political reasons to declare those separate species is that forest elephants inhabit forests and savanna elephants inhabit a completely different habitat for the most part and those populations are declining at different rates and so if you just look at the full population of african elephants all the forest elephants could be killed off and it wouldn't necessarily reflect overall within that species because you're considering both of them. So by declaring them separate, we can now have separate protections mm -hmm. for a critically endangered species versus an endangered species. So I found that a very exciting today. I was talking out loud to myself at lunch, being like, oh, dang, all right, here we are. <laughs> um, but, uh, but overall, the main threat that all of these elephants face is still poaching is the main threat for them. They also have a lot of habitat loss and conflict with people. Uh, also, palm oil is an issue. So if you love elephants, if you want us to do an episode on elephants, shoot us a message. We, we love elephants. We'd be happy to do that. But again, we want your guys' input on what we end up having our topics be. So we'd be happy to talk more about that if that's something you're interested in. You have anything else to add, Sarah, for this, or should we move on to our reviews? Nope. I was just going to say, yeah, thanks for that overview, Casey. And so we'll we'll try to bring you news like this uh, related to the nature and conservation world from time to time. So um, yeah, again, just let us know what you're interested in, in hearing more about. Also, some behind the scenes knowledge. 
we're recording about three weeks in advance of when these episodes come out at the moment, which means this is breaking news today, but maybe a little bit on the older end by the time you hear it, but hopefully it's still exciting for you. Maybe it's, you're not plugged into that newsfeed. So uh, yeah, we'll sometimes talk about things and hey, maybe the world's a completely different place in three weeks, but that's where we're at right now. So just uh, take a second and we'll be right back with Sarah's review of Leave Only Footprints. So like Casey mentioned, I'm going to be doing a review today of Leave Only Footprints, which is a book written by a gentleman named Connor Knighton. And I this is this is one of the things that I did during the pandemic. I read this book last year, so it's not the most fresh, unfortunately, review in my memory. But the good news is that uh, I loved this book well enough to be able to talk about it a year later. So if you are at all a reader, interested in reading things in the nature realm, spoiler alert, I guess this is a two thumbs up would highly recommend book from me. The, The thing that I remember most about it is that you know, a handful of pages in, I was already angry because I was like, this is the book that I wish I had written. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I loved the idea. I loved the premise. And I thought he did it so well. So the, the full title of this book is called Leave Only Footprints, My Acadia to Zion Journey Through Every National Park. And I do so very much love the national parks. So this this premise was totally right up my alley. And so so basically the premise here, it's sort of a memoir type book. So he really combined his own personal experiences with his journey through the national parks. And he, the author is a correspondent with uh, a news program, CBS Sunday Morning, um, he works with. And so he took this journey through national parks in part doing it for a work-related project, but then made it his own journey to do all of these national parks. So I thought that was really cool. And the idea came to him. He did this back in, oh, I think it's 2016. He was doing it as part of doing these stories as part of um, the 100-year celebration of the National Park Service, which I believe was in 2016. So maybe he was traveling in 2015, but somewhere in that window. Um, So he decided to make this journey of, and he did just the ones that are officially parks. So within the National Park Service, there's over 400. There's the parks, the monuments, you know, national seashores, all of those types of things. And he just hit the, the parks. So 59 parks over the course of, of 52 weeks was his journey. And again, I'm just like, what I what I wouldn't give to be able to do that. I think that's so cool. Um, and the way that he structured the book, I thought was really clever too. So the chapters, he, it's not, if you're looking for an in-depth sort of review information on, on each national park, that's not what this is. He's, his chapters are sort of different topics. So he'll have like he started off with sunrise and ended with sunset, first of all. How beautiful is that alone? <laughs> um, and then he had chapters like there, there was animals, God, forgiveness, sound were all of his different chapters. And he would have usually two or three parks 
grouped under each chapter. And sometimes, you know, the tie-in would be, uh, would be very sort of literal. Other times there was a more uh, emotional <laughs> component that he linked, uh, linked these parks together uh, into that topic. So um, I just, again, I loved it all the way through. I, I loved the, the concept and I got really invested in his journey. And I, I did learn. So even though it's not, you know, an in-depth look at every every single park i learned things too and my favorite example or the one that sticks out the most anyway a year later was from his chapter titled mystery and casey i don't know if you're familiar with this at all so this was crater lake national park are you familiar with the old man i don't think i am no okay so at crater lake national park there's a log that has been floating in the lake vertically sticking straight up in the water and it just travels around and that's the and nobody man. really know like it's you know that shouldn't be usually they would logs would float around horizontally but the old man just sticks up out of the water <laughs> and travels around and they've been recording its movements and i'm just like that's fascinating and how have i made it this far in life and never heard about that um, so just little tidbits like that you'll pick up. Uh, but I, again, I, I thought it was beautifully done. If you're looking for a book to read, Leave Only Pr Footprints was beautiful. That's excellent. Uh, that sounds really intriguing. I will say if it was published when you said it was, that means that the newest national park, which is probably the closest national yes. park to us, isn't in it. So it was, he got it in time that that was in, like he mentions it in the epilogue. So no, he did not, that was not part of his, his journey, but he does mention it in, in the epilogue of the book and kind of ties that in. Yeah, it's Indiana Dunes oh, sorry, you National Park. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Woo -woo. yeah, I love that park. Also, quick plug, our friend Olivia has a podcast called Remarkable Parks. Yes. So if you are very into national parks, state parks, all things parks, she's doing a podcast reviewing each park. I did an episode about Indiana National Dunes. Uh, so if you want to listen to another podcast, it's a very positive one. If you're very parks oriented, definitely check out Leave Only Footprints and then the podcast Remarkable Parks. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll be right back with our main discussion. All right, and we're back, guys, to the main segment of this episode. Sarah called you bluebirds on the way in. We talked a little bit about birding, and you probably read the episode title, which has something to do with backyard <laughs> birds. So that's what we're talking about today. If you know me very well, you know I'm normally someone who loves to be in the weeds of global conservation and market issues. Um, so this is actually a little off-brand for me, but... I thought it was important, especially after Sarah's episode last week, we talked about learning to love nature before being asked to heal its wounds. And this is an activity feeding birds that 57 million households, I believe in the US engage in every year, according to Virginia Tech. Uh, I should rephrase and say, maybe it's just 57 million people, but it is a large number. <laughs> Try and find an activity other than like watching TV. <laughs> <laughs> that many people in the U.S. agree is fun to do. And we spend about $3.4 billion every year on feeding birds. 
That's mind blowing to me. That's <laughs> huge. Right. Um, and I found this really lovely quote. It's by Daryl Jones, who's a professor who studies birds. And he said, feeding wild birds is a deceptively commonplace activity, yet it is one of the most intimate, private, and potentially profound forms of interaction with nature. So it's something they found evokes a lot of emotions in people and has actually also inspired action. So today we're going to talk about how to safely do that and how to have a really beneficial relationship with our backyard birds. And Sarah, I was wondering, growing up, did your family feed birds? Do you feed birds now? Well, I do not feed birds now because I know myself well enough to know that I'm, I'm not quite up to the task, I think, of what I would need to do to feed birds responsibly, which I think we'll talk about uh, in a little bit. But, and when I was younger, I don't think we did, but when I was in high school, my parents sort of took up bird watching as a hobby and we did have some backyard feeders there. I had basically nothing to do with it, um, but yeah, we had some suet feeders, we had a platform feeder, my mom, has a hummingbird feeder now that she still has. I think my dad's got a few bird feeders that he still maintains um, at his house as well. So I've had a little, a little bit of bird feeding experience through that, but none, none that I do myself currently. We just, we had a feeder growing up and I remember very specifically like watching out the window mm -hmm. and uh, yelling at the squirrels, yes, like in yes. a very like playful a way. Lot of that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but also the chickadees and, and blue jays, we'd get a lot at the, those feeders. So it sounds like your parents actually did some of the tips that we're going to talk about today. The other thing I wanted to talk about, even though we are so investing, so invested in backyard birds, um, we have lost about 29% of all birds in the Western hemisphere in the last 50 years. So that's a really incredible decline. And it's happened across species of different habitats and families. And so that includes waterfowl. It includes a lot of migratory birds, grassland birds, but even birds found in our backyard and invasive species. Starlings are not native to the U.S. and we've still lost hundreds of millions of starlings in the last couple decades. So that's, and that's according to Science Magazine, um, or sorry, it was an article in Science. <laughs> I just like the way you go. that's according to science, <laughs> according to science, that's what I have it quoted. Yes. Yes. Um, and I do want to point out some of my sources, um, in general, I'll, I'll try and source specific things, but I did rely on bird watchers digest, um, the Audubon society and all about birds, which is in connection with Cornell's lab of ornithology. And I, I would also like to point out though, on the bright side is we have had lots of conservation success stories for birds as well. Some of our earliest. Uh, legislation protecting wildlife is about migratory birds and uh and those birds that we have targeted for conservation are actually the exceptions to the rule we've been really successful with certain species having conservation efforts impact their populations and overall even though a lot of these species are suffering from things that we as an individual have very little control over like climate change like large-scale habitat uh, transformation into agriculture and logging. There's also lots of things that we do that have impacts on our native species. So that's what we're going to talk about today is how to make a nice bird-friendly home in your backyard. So one of the things I really like about birding is it is a pretty accessible thing. People across a bunch of different ages do it. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about backyard birding, but if you don't have a backyard, that's okay. There are feeders that you can attach 
straight to your windows. Um, there's local parks that you can have similar impacts in. There's nature centers that have bird watching areas. So these are all good places for you to try and, and experience some of these birds. So the first thing you should do is to research some of the native birds in your local area, because that's really going to determine how and what you're going to feed these birds and what sort of seeds you should buy. So Sarah, I asked a little bit earlier, uh, do you know anything about Darwin's finches? I mean, the bare minimum. I know they were, they're birds at the Galapagos <laughs> Islands and they have different beaks. That's they what I know do. about Darwin's. Yeah. So Darwin's finches, they became famous because they helped kind of spark his ideas about evolution. And it's just, there were lots of similar species of birds on the Galapagos Islands that were filling different niches within the ecosystem. And they had different shaped beaks that helped them eat very specific foods. And the same thing has happened in your local area as well. Your different little feeder birds, even if they're around the same size, have different shaped beaks and different roles in the ecosystem. And that's why they can all live together. Like if everybody ate the same things, mm -hmm. then, then they would be out competing. <laughs> One species would eventually dominate over it. Um, some animals are generalists, which means they're going to eat just about anything they can come across or within a, a, a wide group. Um, and others are specialists, which are very specific to one type of food source. So, uh, Sarah, what's your favorite backyard bird? Oh boy. Um, I, <laughs> my favorite backyard bird is basically anything other than a Robin or a blue Jay. Not that I <laughs> dislike Robins and blue Jays don't come after me. They're lovely, but, uh, I think anything, anything other than that, that I can identify is my favorite backyard bird. They feel more exotic than yes, the they Robin feel and the blue just Jay. a little more exotic. <laughs> like cardinals even cardinals still, i mean yeah. cardinals are borderline but i i yeah i just they're, they're so like brilliantly colored that they feel a little more exotic um so i will say some of the the ones that i get to see in my backyard that i love i love when i get to see woodpeckers and i have a, a few different kinds that i've seen so like we've i've seen downy woodpeckers red-bellied woodpeckers um pileated woodpeckers in my backyard and northern northern flickers which i love seeing northern flickers because they look very exotic to me i feel like they're yeah. found everywhere but they just look very different to me so that's always fun and then i think i mean the most fun for me thing that i've gotten to see in my yard was a barred owl Ooh, I've very cool owls a couple just a couple of times but that always living for those birds of prey yeah yeah uh, yeah, basically anything other than a house sparrow, I feel like it's yeah. exciting to well, me. Yeah. I did try to feed our backyard birds here and immediately my feeder was overtaken by house sparrows that decimated my food supply in one day and <laughs> it was over. Yep. So, um, so some of the tips that we have for you to make the most of your backyard birding is I just, I mentioned earlier, we spend billions of dollars on bird seed, a kind of common misconception might be if I buy the cheaper stuff, it's gonna, you know, go a little bit far farther for my dollar. But remember each of those seeds are made up of something a little bit different. And some of that is fillers. So certain things like oats or wheat or Milo, a lot of your birds are just going to pick that out and throw it on the ground. Mm -hmm. And you're going to end up with weeds and moldy seed on the ground. Um, that ends up suppressing your grass. So you actually want to go for a higher quality food because it's going to be more efficient and it's going to actually last longer. 
Uh, you also want to look at what those native birds you have visiting your yard. So maybe before you start looking, you know, to buy something, maybe you do a little bit of preliminary backyard watching, see what's going on in your local park, what birds you're seeing so that you can feed the ones that you're intending to feed. Another thing is that we get a lot of pests. Well, I should say quote unquote pests. These are animals that live in our area who are just as valuable as birds, but maybe not who we're intending to feed. So uh, another way that you can make your seed go a little bit longer is just to put a small amount of your seed in there every day. And that way you're kind of rationing it out for those birds, but also that means if it's taken in at night or eaten up by night, that the deer and the possums and the raccoons are not going to mess as much with your feeder and you'll be able to get it a little bit longer. So it seems that one good generalist food item, if you're looking for something is sunflower seeds, which is super common in a lot of bird food. Um, many smaller birds like finches really like something called Niger seed. Um, it's also commonly called thistle seed. So it's the really tiny stuff. I grew up in a garden center and I used to like to stick my hand in the giant bulk <laughs> bin of the bird seed because it felt cool. Um, but we had yeah, a lot of Niger and thistle seed that we get a little bit sticky. Uh, and by feeding out small amounts every day, you're also helping prevent that material from getting as wet and moldy as easily. So that means you'll have to clean your feeder a little bit less often. And also not all birds eat seeds. Some birds eat fruits and nuts, um, especially migratory birds like Orioles. They could really use a little bit of a pick me up if you end up putting out like an orange or something that can be really helpful to them. And bird seed doesn't also have to be professional. You can also put out things like peanut butter rolled with cornmeal, which are two pretty common and pretty inexpensive ingredients. Roll those up on a pine cone, hang it from a tree. Um, and those are ways that you're gonna be able to feed birds, maybe a slightly smaller cost to you if you're someone who doesn't have a lot of extra spending money to feed on those birds. And if you do your research, you're also gonna help deter some of those invasive species. So you're gonna have less of those house sparrows and those starlings coming up and eating all your food. Now, just like the food items you choose are important. So is the placement. So Sarah, earlier you talked about how your family had platform feeders and hanging feeders. They eat in different areas, some on the ground, some up high. Uh, one of the things you want to think about is putting your feeders within the vicinity of vegetation. So within 10 to 15 feet of vegetation, because you're going to have with a congregation of birds, sometimes birds of prey will then be attracted. Mm -hmm. And so having a place for those birds to fly into, to rest, to be able to get away from predators is great. You do wanna make sure though, that you place it far enough away that if a cat were to hide in those bushes, they couldn't then ambush the birds at your feeder. So 10 to 15 feet is a really good sort of placement for them to make sure they can still get cover, but not get ambushed by a cat. Another thing to think about is when you do have squirrels, I remember yelling like in a very good natured way, because I do also have a, a soft spot in my heart for squirrels. Uh, one of the things some people try and do is they try and put petroleum jelly or grease on their bird feeder poles to make it so that the squirrels can't get up onto the feeders. Don't do that. Uh, the reason that that's a problem is that bird feathers are very sensitive. And if they end up getting that petroleum jelly or grease on their feathers, it can end up messing with their ability to fly and end up breeding diseases. So you're much better buying something called a baffle, which is basically like this big flat sort of roundish uh, item that you put around that the squirrels just can't climb around. There, yeah, there's lots of tips and tricks out there to 
and that you can get from other bird enthusiasts and, and feeders. But yeah, we, we always just sort of let them be with the occasional yell out the window as well. But yeah, I de definitely very commonplace to look out and see a giant squirrel sitting squarely in the middle of the platform feeder for sure. Quick squirrel tangent. I'm from the East Coast and the East Coast, we have gray squirrels, which are small, cute little squirrels. And I moved to the Midwest and we have monster fox squirrels here. The biggest squirrels I have ever seen, like small cat sized <laughs> squirrels live here. Uh, who knew the U.S. is full of crazy wildlife. Sarah, you've been mostly in the Midwest yes. your life. You also lived in Florida. Do they have the squirrels in Florida too? Yes, I'm, I'm sure they did. You know what they don't have in Florida though is chipmunks. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't I know chipmunks. that. And I, I sort of realized it after several years of living in Florida that there weren't any chipmunks. And I was very excited to see them again when I came back up to the Midwest. I do love some chipmunks. Those are some, <laughs> some cute little Chippendale little squirrel relatives right yeah, there. Chippendale, at least they, they do have those chipmunks. And I guess I should specify this is central Florida. I don't know of, across the state of Florida. Perhaps they are. Yeah, but. Florida's got some good diverse. If you're a Florida listener, you've got some really cool bird species that you could be feeding yes. right now. Uh, so bird feeders overall, uh, there's actually not that many studies out there, surprisingly, about um, feeding birds and its impacts on populations and things like that. They have found that feeder birds tend to be uh, doing better population wise than some of the other counterparts. So it probably is having a very positive impact on bird populations, but attracting birds to our backyards can also pose some dangers with them. So Sarah, what are some dangers to backyard birds that you're familiar with? Well, one of the big ones or at least one of the the reasons and the, the reason that I don't currently put out bird feeders myself is that for a little while there was there was some period several years ago now where even some bird conservation organizations were telling people not to feed birds because of potential threats of disease and the spread of disease so making sure that you're caring for your your feeders appropriately to not spread those diseases so that's one that I'm aware of and a big one that is kind of tough to talk about for some people sometimes it is cats you've probably heard my <laughs> beloved cat uh, already several times tonight in this podcast but uh, but yeah I've, I've always had uh my cat is an indoor only cat, but folks who have indoor outdoor cats or outdoor only cats, um, as well as feral cats can be a huge threat to bird populations. I know like bird, bird strikes can be uh, an issue sometimes, especially again, if we're bringing birds closer to our houses. Um, so those are things to think about. Yeah, you just hit the, the three. So let's dive a little deeper on some of those. Those are the three top ones that I've heard. Um, number one is cats. Num cats are almost definitely the number one threat to birds, um, probably worldwide, but I'm probably generalizing too much. But overall, um, they have wiped out entire species of birds on island populations. And here in the U.S., um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Smithsonian did a study, and it's a really broad estimate, but between one and four billion birds are killed by cats every year. 
And that isn't even mentioning the six to 22 billion small mammals, the reptiles, all of those guys. Um, cats are little tiny predators that we allow to live in our houses. Uh, it's pretty <laughs> incredible. Um, now, two thirds of those were attributed to feral cats. So if you have a feral cat colony in your area, that's something to keep in mind of whether or not it's a good idea to really attract a big bird population to your area. But one third of that is owned, uh, owned cats, pet cats. Mm. So that's like one, potentially up to 1 billion birds a year are being killed by people's pet cats. So as Sarah said, uh, keeping them inside, Sarah, did you have something to add? Well, no, I was just going to say, cause I, I think that's a really good point to make that distinction that one third of them are, are pet cats, because I feel like sometimes the temptation might be there to say that, but cats are like, they're just doing what cats do and they're predators, as you said, and this is just the circle of life and it's, it's normal. This is the problem that we as humans have escalated majorly. Absolutely. Cats have followed us. Um, and it's sometimes a little hard to talk about them as invasive species because, we envision invasive species sometimes being things like kudzu, which is a really like obnoxious plant or pythons down in the Florida Everglades. It's hard to look at, you know, my pet cat Rue and be like, you're a monster, <laughs> but lots of our relatives are kind of little monsters. Now there's some, some good news. First of all, if you can keep your cats indoors, like if you get a kitten, never introduce it to the outdoors in the first place. So you don't have, I know a lot of people who are like, yeah, but that's what they've known their whole life start them out indoors. Um, but also what they found is in a study by the university of Exeter for indoor outdoor cats, they found that feeding your cat, a high protein food diet reduces the kills they're making by 36% and five to 10 minutes of rigorous play reduces the kills by 25%. So there's actually some major things you can do if you have an indoor outdoor cat to make sure that they're killing less native wildlife because you're feeding them. Right. So uh, the way they did this study is they found a bunch of people whose cats like to bring home their kill and lay them (laughs) at their feet. And that's how they were able to measure it because actually invasive and feral and pet cats are not well studied in urban environments. We actually don't really have an idea of how they live their lives, but that's how they were able to find those numbers. And that's actually something I'm switching Rue over to a higher protein diet because he's constantly hungry after he eats. So we're going to see if that stops some of the obnoxious 5 a.m. meowing. <laughs> Good <laughs> Make sure his belly's full. Yeah, we'll see. But that is, is one way if you have a cat that you have going outdoors, even if you're not feeding birds to help protect native populations. Something else you just talked about there is disease. Um, so house finch eye disease, avian pox, and salmonella have all been put in uh, contact with those feeders. And that's one of the arguments that, yes, bird societies did make a couple years ago that disease can spread really rapidly through feeders. So one of the things to do is if you see a sick bird at your feeder or find a dead bird by your feeder, you should stop feeding for a week or two. Just don't encourage those birds to gather in such a small area where that disease is going to transfer very quickly. You just pull that food source back. You can reintroduce it and and see a little bit later. Don't place a bird bath under your feeder where their feces are going to get into it. Make sure that that bird bath, which is also an important source of water and a way for the birds to clean themselves, is located far enough away that they're not going to be constantly pooping in it. And the other thing is to clean your feeder regularly. Yeah, um, using a one-part bleach, 10 parts water, 
uh, solution is a great way to kill most bacteria and diseases from your feeder. Um, a lot of the websites I saw actually were only encouraging you to do it, you know, once a season, but other places I've seen have encouraged you to do it up to weekly. So whenever you remember, that's a great time to do it, especially if you've got any moldy seed or anything, you need to make sure you clean that out to help protect those birds because you want healthy, vibrant birds in your backyard. You don't want a little, you know, typhoid Mary finch oh, out there, right? No. <laughs> we, no, do not. we don't need a super spinner event in your backyard. So, uh, so they're definitely a good idea. And yeah, as you said, bird strikes glass, bird numbers are always hard. Anywhere between 600 to, uh, 600 million to a billion birds, according to Audubon Society, die each year from glass strikes. So the thing that you should know about birds is that they don't understand glass. Glass is nothing like anything exists in nature. And they see the reflection of habitat, trees and things in your windows. And they fly at it thinking that it is a tree out there. So uh, some of the things that you can do are to uh, locate your feeders within three feet of glass. That seems counterintuitive, but actually what it means is that the bird is not going to be, uh, build up enough momentum from that feeder to then hit the glass with any sort of velocity that would then injure them. Um, another thing you can do is add decals to your glass, or you can add mesh, like, like the, what you would cover fruit trees in to make sure that that, uh, basically is like a little trampoline that you get off of instead of hitting something really hard. Um, and those are really the three biggest problems that you're going to have with introducing birds to an urban environment. But also what we find is that feeding birds through the winter, through migratory seasons, a lot of their natural food resources are no longer available to them. So what the current advice is, is yes, bird feeding is actually really beneficial, but we should be really responsible with how we do it so that we can encourage these animals to live really healthy lives and find things in our backyard that are really good for them. So you said your mom feeds hummingbirds? Yeah, she's still, we had hummingbird feeders when I was in high school too. And yeah, I know my mom still has one at her house in her backyard. My grandparents used to feed hummingbirds out in Colorado and they had so many. It yeah. was amazing. It was really beautiful. Um, I love hummingbirds. Most people really love amazing little hummingbirds. Yeah. Some advice for hummingbird feeders, uh, mix one part sugar with four parts water to make the solution. You don't actually have to buy it. <laughs> you can actually make it yourself, but don't substitute honey or brown sugar. Just granulated sugar is perfect. Any of the other things can actually promote those diseases. They don't have the right sugar content to uh, feed those hummingbirds. Hummingbirds are adapted to plants that are generally kind of like a cone or trumpet shaped and they've got their little beaks and their little tongues will go in there. And so those are what we would call, consider specialists where they've got a really narrow type of food that they like to eat. Sarah, have you heard of anything about red dye and hummingbirds? I actually, I, I haven't. I know I, I saw you were going to be talking about this and I, I'm really curious about it because that's not something that I was ever aware of. I mean, the, the feeders are red, you know, so mm -hmm. I know they're, they're attracted to that bright color, but we you know we never did anything with red dye in our hummingbird feeders. Yeah. A lot of times you'll find the food solutions that you can buy are red. Obviously it's really attractive to our eye and we know hummingbirds are attracted to red coloration. Sometimes when I was a teenager, one of my coworkers at my dad's garden center came up to me and said, we're not selling red dyed hummingbird feed anymore because it's been linked to weakening their eggs. 
I actually, yeah, earlier in the pandemic, our, our job was feeding hummingbirds with red dye and I threw a little fit about it. <laughs> and it uh, turns out that is an unproven claim. That is actually a big common misconception. So I learned something for this episode. There are no studies actually showing that red dye weakens eggshells or harms hummingbirds in other ways. Other claims were like that it hurt their kidneys. Uh, that is probably kind of conflating the issues that happened with bald eagles, um, especially in the 60s and 70s, where we had pesticides that were making their eggs so weak that they would break when the adults would sit on them and prevent them from being able to reproduce. So it seems to be conflated with that, along with some issues with red dye in the 90s. There's a certain type of red dye that was uh, related to some health issues in humans. So it probably was those things put together. That being said, Red dye is not necessary to your feeder. Uh, as you pointed out, the feeders are red and that's what the birds are attracted to, not the actual liquid that's uh, they're drinking with their tongues and not the stuff that's inside. So there's no real reason to get red dye in your food. If you're someone who likes things to be as natural as possible, then I would just go with the sugar and the water because you can make that yourself and you know exactly what's in it. So, so I learned something. Yeah, that's interesting. So just to recap, not necessary, but not harmful if you have it. As not that we know of. That, not harmful that we know of. Yeah. I mean, I think that birds are really tiny animals. <laughs> Even like we have a bird at our house. Her name is Luna. She's a tiny little parrotlet. And I'm like, we can't cook on non-stick pans anymore because that can release fumes and they're tiny little bodies. Um, Andrew has pointed out like, if it hurts them, it probably isn't good for us either, <laughs> which is also a good point. But she weighs just a couple right. grams and so do your backyard birds. So, I mean, yeah, we have no proof that that is, that is something that harms them. It is not necessary for them. So until further studies come out, you can make your choice. But currently, even though sometimes here's, here's a good lesson there. Again, we're not experts. And sometimes when you have eco-consciousness on the mind, it can kind of dominate everything else that you're thinking about in that moment. So I saw our coworkers feeding the birds instead of being like, how great. <laughs> I got very upset that they might be harming the hummingbirds. Um, and, and didn't necessarily approach that as nicely as I could have too, you know, <laughs> recognizing that, that we're all humans. And in that case, I was absolutely uh, not supported by science. So just, you know, my gut feeling is why would we feed red dye to birds? Um, that that's not something that's been proven to be harmful. So it's not something you have to worry about. You don't have to yell at your grandma about it. Like <laughs> I apparently would. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> Hi guys, this is Casey from the future with some information uh, after recording our podcast. A little bit more on the red dye. Again, there is no scientifically proven evidence showing that red dye is harmful for hummingbirds, but there is some anecdotal evidence that we've gotten from bird watching organizations and licensed rehabbers. So at best, red dye may be just a harmless additive that's unnecessary, but at worst, it may be causing harm to our hummingbirds. It is worth noting, we do have international listeners, hello, that 
this particular red dye is banned in and regulated in some other countries. It is approved here in the U.S. by the FDA. Um, it is worth noting that hummingbirds do consume a really high percentage of their body weight in food every day compared to humans. So uh, best piece of advice is to just make your own hummingbird food. Use just sugar and water and you don't need red dye and then you don't have to worry about adding extra things into that hummingbird's body. So thanks so much. Back to the pod. But beyond the feeder, our native wildlife, um, our birds, we have lots of them that stick around and are non-migratory over the wintertime. And they uh, use food resources that are native to the area. When we develop our cities and have our backyards and we want to put in all sorts of ornamental plants, we can really end up messing up the complex ecosystem that our native birds really rely on. So um, even if you don't have a backyard, you can still influence your community, like your local park, your grandma's house, wherever, to plant native species that help feed birds. And again, that's something you should do research for for your own uh, particular region. I'm not going to recommend certain plants because the things in the Midwest are not going to be great out in California. But yeah, look up uh, things for your native area. Many birds actually rely on insects to support the growth of their babies, especially in the springtime. And a 2018 study showed that native plants support more insect biomass than non-native plants. And that's really important because they did find in yards where they didn't have certain native trees that had a lot of caterpillars, which is what most birds eat in that time. Um, most of these birds like chickadees, they found that the parents were not able to raise the chicks. The chicks did not grow as quickly. They weren't actually producing enough successful eggs at a replacement rate. So you want that replacement rate for those chicks to end up outnumbering the adults because also things are going to kill off those chicks before they're able to reproduce. But you want them to have high survivability in the beginning of their lives to help keep those populations stable. And that's not something that they were able to do in the backyards that didn't have native plants. Sarah, what is, you've got trees in your backyard that threaten to kill you when it's windy. Tonight, man, do you it's have any rough? It's yeah, it's gonna be very windy tonight. <laughs> um, I know we rent, so we're someone who doesn't have a whole lot of control over all of the plants that are in our yard. Although we did plant some native like coral bells and things, and we do have some plants that have berries that we find a lot of birds in that ginger likes to scare a little bit. Um, so yeah, anything that you can do to create a little bit more of an ecosystem for them, not just rely on yourself. Also, it means that. If you forget to feed the birds, you're not going to feel hugely guilty about um, not being able to support that. That's actually a more cost-effective way to make sure that your birds get food than buying seed all the time. If, and I, I have not checked prior to recording this to make sure that this is still a thing, but the National Wildlife Federation does a... Oh gosh, I can't even remember what the, the program is called now, but like a, a backyard wildlife certificate type of program. Are you, yes. Do you know what I'm talking about, yep. Casey? So where you have mm -hmm. to like check off the different things that you have in your yard that would provide food, water, shelter for wildlife. And then you can send it in and you can get a little like sign if you want to, to put in your, in your backyard that says it's a, a you know, certified backyard, but I, it, not to, to suggest everybody needs to go do that, but they do have some resources available for these more natural things. Like what types of things can you be looking for in your backyard? What types of things can you do in your backyard to provide these more natural food sources or 
or shelter or whatever the, the case may be, if you're not somebody who feels like you are quite ready to take that step like me and uh, do the <laughs> bird feeding responsibly. So uh, just throwing that out there as a possible resource to get some ideas. Yeah. Remember some of these birds are traveling at literally thousands of miles and having your own little oasis where they can rest and they have everything they need, that food, water, and shelter can be really vitally important. This is also a good time. Maybe you move to the neighborhood, you're new there to start striking up some conversations with your neighbors and maybe together you can create a slightly bigger patch of habitat for these animals and make sure that it's safe for birds. The cats are indoors and that um, you have bird safe glass by putting decoys cows up and that you are all kind of having each other's back and all the birds backs. So the last thing I kind of wanted to talk about was some citizen science to go with this. I've also heard this uh, referred to as community science since citizen can sometimes be a little bit of a loaded word and what it really has to do with not really being a citizen so much as being part of a larger scientific community. And, uh, but when, when they use the word citizen, they're typically just meaning that you're a lay person. You're not someone who's a professional scientist. So these are things that you can actually help, uh, add to scientific data that can then be, uh, published. So one of the cool ones I found was project feeder watch, which has been going on for a really long time for decades. And this is actually where they get a lot of these population numbers and declines and species censuses. Um, so you can help scientists monitor backyard birds. That one does have a little bit of a cost to keep that program running. It's $18 for the year. That's not a super high cost if you're looking for a little hobby, um, but I know that sometimes cost can be something prohibitive to you. There's also lots of studies going on through the Cornell Lab of Ornithology that you can look on theirs and see one that maybe fits your uh, lifestyle a little bit better or your timeline. And Sarah, do you have any apps or resources? You said that you've tapped into some of those recently. Yeah, so I mean, Cornell man amazing they know what they're doing. i love the cornell lab of ornithology <laughs> i know they have like classes and things like that i haven't done any of those yet they have a ton of things their merlin bird id app is like that's how i do most of my birding honestly they because now they have not only can you go in and like look for birds you can put in description of birds that you see you can also take a photo and submit the photo to the app and it will identify through the photo. Not, it's not perfect all, all the time, of course, but I have submitted some pretty blurry, far off <laughs> photos and gotten some good answers from that. So I do love the, the Merlin Bird ID app. Again, it's nice for, for people like me who, again, I am a total amateur and I more have fun doing it. I, I do love to, to learn more, absolutely. But I, I really do just get enjoyment out of being out there and seeing different things and learning what they are. Like, I, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily feel like I need to memorize field markings and, and all of those sorts of things to enjoy it. So it's nice, uh, if, especially if you're new at it um, and it might help keep kind of the frustration down too, because birds are hard, man. They're hard to identify. <laughs> They're hard to see. And the males and females can be different and the juveniles can be different and, and all <laughs> of the things. So I love that app, the Merlin Bird ID app. Um, Cornell has another app. So this was a new one that, that I picked up last year is um, it's just called the BirdNet app. That, that's also through Cornell. And this one will record audio. And so you could, like, I would just sit out in my backyard with this app open and it would record. And then when you hear something, you highlight that where it shows up on the recording and you submit it and it like immediately will 
if it can analyze it, will tell you. Technology it's so is darn amazing. Cool. It's so cool. Sarah, can you do a bird call for us? Uh, <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I can't. I can't do a bird call. I can tell you. So I think the first bird that I ever identified that I ever felt like I could identify consistently via its call was the red-winged blackbird. Are you familiar with that one? I can't do that one at all. Yes. They do this like thrilling <laughs> call. I'm not even going to try it. But the second one is the cardinal. And I like the cardinal because they just do, they're like pew, 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 pew. Like it's super <laughs> rapid fire. So that's not a, not a call obviously, but that kind of rapid fire sound. I love to hear that. Yes, yeah, someone called them like a Star Wars yes. bird because it sounds like the the pew pew from the the yep. guns in Star that Wars. Someone so. wasn't me, was it? I I do that. I but the, that's amazing. Yes. Um, and I love everything that you can tie into Star Wars. So there you go. It's true. That's my best uh, bird. <laughs> now you have to do one. Well, I know the like who cooks for you? Who cooks for you? Which is yeah, yeah that's an that barn owl, owl there. So, um, but yeah, and then there was. <laughs> I was always told chickadees make this chickadee dee 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 sound. I've literally never heard that. I I never understand how people phonetically write down bird calls. It makes almost no sense to me. Like, how am I supposed to? I don't. Nope. I don't get it. I will say, again, not super on brand of me to talk about. Uh, for me to talk about backyard birds because I'm actually not a huge bird person. Um, we inherited our pet bird. Uh, I am generally a little freaked out by the big ones because I, I don't understand their body language, but I'll say like a, a kind of terminating moment for me is last spring when our workplace was closed. So there were no people around really all the birds were having a field day. They were like, yeah, we own this place. <laughs> like there are no humans here. All that generation of birds probably thought they were born in the wild. Cause they're like, yeah, humans don't live here. We just got the place to ourselves. But a coworker of mine, her name's Olivia. Hi, Olivia. Uh, Olivia Claffley. She pointed out this little sparrow, a little boy sparrow. And he was like doing a little dance for two little girl sparrows. And she was like, look at him trying to show off. And I just really hadn't thought about birds' lives deeply enough. Like it's very easy to talk about like primates who are very close to us, for example, or even elephants, but like the little sparrows, there's like a hundred million of them or whatever. But that really took took a moment and I realized I was watching someone's life in like this little miniature microcosm of a world and realizing that those, you know, it's just one of those moments for me, even someone who's an environmental educator who is around wildlife all the time to take that moment and really be like, oh, right. They, they have all this stuff that they're doing too. Their lives are going on while my life is going on. And I just didn't take the time to really look at it and it's all around us. So I hope that that story gets a little inspiration for you. If you're like Meh, birds, like they're doing stuff and you should check it out. Just take a little time for it. It just takes some quiet to really figure it out. Yeah. And I think that the backyard feeding or going bird watching is, is a great way to do that, to start to notice. Yeah. Those they found that like people got to know their little birds in their backyard and they got really mad if there was a cat around and they got really sad if they started to pass away. So it becomes your own little soap opera. Yeah. So get invested, yeah. love some birds. And I, I, I'll have just one more or two more suggestions, I guess, in terms of things that you can use to help as you're, as you're starting to learn birds. There's a thing called an identifier 
and we actually oh, yeah. use this at work, but, but this is a thing that my family had too, when I was in high school. And again, it's a little handheld device thing that you can slide different cards in and it has pictures of different birds and will make the bird calls for you. So it helps you start to learn those bird calls a little bit. And I, I'll tell you what, like, it is so fun. It's so fun when you're outside and you hear again, you know, that's why I like the Cardinals still like they, it still makes me smile, even though they're a common bird. Like when I walk outside and I hear that pew, 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 I'm like, oh, where are you Cardinal? And it's fun. It's fun to be able to do that. Um, so that's helpful. And then I really do, I, I feel like getting little connections into the birding community is good too. So like I follow a local bird watching group and it is, it's a lot of people just posting pictures of their own backyard birds at their feeders. Um, but you get to, again, learning how to identify. So some people will post and um, they, they don't know what it is. They just enjoy watching these birds. So they'll post pictures and other people will tell them what it is and explain, you know, what they're looking at. And so that's a really fun way for me to learn too. So just a couple of other resources if you're interested in. Oh yeah. There, I mean, there's Facebook groups that you can join. If you're looking for a little community. There's lots of places uh, for beginners and, and for people who know what they're doing too. So you can help beginners start to cultivate that love of birds. So you guys stick around and we will give you our action, our little homework for the week. Thanks so much for listening again this week, everybody. We're so happy to have you here and be, be a part of this little growing community that we're hopefully creating here. And just like last week, we're going to wrap up with a little action, a little challenge for you this week. So Casey, what's it going to be? Well, I think that our action from last week was great. So if you can continue to spend two hours out, outside, and that, remember, that's total. That doesn't have to be in one big chunk. It's just over the course of time. But you do have to go outside for this homework. And I want you to listen, look for local birds, and try and identify at least one species. But if you're feeling really just ambitious, try and find five different species of birds. Yeah. You might want to go for a walk. You might end up just finding them in your backyard, but look for those local species of birds. You can use those apps. If you're just like, that's a brown one. And I don't know what it is. Like use those apps and figure out what it is. And if you like birds, uh, if we have big birders in the audience, we can do more episodes about all sorts of bird things, national policy. We can go about other like exotic bird conservation, birds in the pet trade, all sorts of stuff. So let us know if that's something you're interested in. Otherwise we're going to keep just doing topics that we think are interesting. Um, and so send us some stuff on social media. Again, it's a, a little greener pod on Instagram, and then you can find us at a little greener podcast on Facebook. Yeah. And if, so if you are out there birding and you get some good pictures, feel free to send us those too. Tag us. Let us know what you're doing. Yes. Tag us in those pictures. We are going to post some pictures to our Instagram. I want to give a quick shout out to our friend, Alex, who is probably the best bird feeder I know and also an amazing and photographer. photographer. Yeah. Yes. And she has graciously agreed to share uh, her photos with us and allow us to post them to our Instagram for this episode. So thank you, Alex. She's an amazing bird watcher she's found something like 30 species in her backyard now so it, it treat it like pokemon catch them all check them out start your um, list. and start your list yeah start your birder life list 
So thank you so much for joining us, everyone. We will see you next week for another episode of A Little Greener. Stay safe. <laughs>